There are five times more hires made through Indeed.com than any other job site. Imagine a lottery that had five times more winners. A Sunday with five times more touchdowns. When you're hiring, it makes five times more sense to use Indeed. Right now, we're giving new users a $50 credit to post a sponsored job on the world's number one job site. Claim your $50 credit at Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts. On this podcast, we show you the good, the bad, and the ugly of business. Well, today, we're going to the dark side with tales of deviance, debauchery, and billion-dollar deals. Our guest drew an audience of three-quarters of a million followers to his outrageous Goldman Sachs elevator Twitter feed. And then he wrote an even more scandalous new book called Straight to Hell. And he's my guest today on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, John LaFerre. He's one of the world's most respected business experts, Jeffrey Hazlett. I want to take you behind the scenes on what's happening in business today. And whether you're on Main Street or Wall Street, we're going to find out the secrets behind their success. This is All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Fortinet. So, John, the first thing i got to ask you right off the bat is in the, the beginning of your book, you actually wrote a little dedication, and I think, let me see if I can pull, I'm going to actually pull it up, I'm sure you remember what it is, and that is where you said to my wife and children, I wrote this for you on the condition that you never read it. First of all, you're married, and do you have kids? Yeah, I'm, uh, I have a, a young wife and two very young kids. So okay, I have I just, a, almost but, a two, two-year-old son and a six-month-old daughter. Okay, because uh, you, you're a little satirical in the, uh, in, in, in the way in which you write some things and so forth, so I want to make sure. So, I... I are you now, are you proud of the stuff that you did that you talk about in the book, or are you kind of remorseful about some of that? It's been it's been kind of misconstrued a little bit. Again, I wrote it, um, as you can tell, unapologetically. Um, I felt it was important to avoid what I considered to be the, the cliches of this genre, which were to include, you know, epiphany and, and redemption. So I tried to be as unapologetic as possible and just put out the stories as I experience them and let people kind of decide for themselves. And, and some people have taken that to say I'm, I'm glorifying Wall Street culture or I'm bragging about these uh, exploits that are kind of laid out there in the book uh, very honestly. Um, and I think the, the reality from my perspective is, is that that really surprised me because the entire genesis of the Twitter account was set up to criticize Wall Street culture and, and kind of satirize. So yeah. I've always felt it's been fairly clear that um, – this is not an attempt to glorify, glorify or brag about any of these exploits. No, I, you know, I give you credit that I think you told it like it it was and is, like it still is, because it still is. I think that it's clearly that you've done that. Because I know a bunch of these guys that are on Wall Street. I've done business with them, uh, both as client and customer, and then um, have some personal knowledge of some of these guys. I've seen them operate in business. So, I, without question, I think you you told it like it is. I think that the difference I'd ask you is. You had a role in some of that stuff. I mean, you were in the middle of some of that stuff. Do you sit back now, the fact that you got a wife and you got kids, do you sit back and go, geez, I shouldn't have done some of that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's called straight to hell, and yeah. we did some, some terrible things. You know, we did some terrible things to our colleagues. We did some terrible things to ourselves. You know, we did some terrible things to our clients. You know, it's, it's, it's a, you know, a pretty brutal look I mean, at the behavior of, 
John, you're, you're kind of a shit, I mean, to be honest with you. I mean, and, or the guys that are in it. I mean, you know, I'm, look, I'm a regular guy from South Dakota. That's where I'm originally from. I, you know, I've been a Fortune 100 officer. You know, and when I hear some of the stuff that you guys pull, you know, I almost want to, you know, take you out to South Dakota and punch you in the face. I mean, n- not you personally sometimes, but the, the, when you see people act the way they do that way, you just go like, this is not, these are not good people. Oh, absolutely. And I've had some feedback from, from some people who said, you know, I read this chapter and it made me want to throw up, yeah. but I'm glad I read it. Yeah. Or I read this chapter and it made me want to punch you in the face, but I'm yeah. glad I read it. Again, you know, my attempt here was to entertain, but also illuminate a culture in a way that hasn't been properly illuminated as I've seen it. And so in doing that, I really had to kind of almost, to your point, throw myself under the bus a little bit. Yeah, and I, and I think you've been fair about that, and I, and I think you take a little heat, but, you know, but in the middle of it, you're in the middle of it, and if you're in the middle of it, you, you, you can't wash some of that stuff off. So, and I think that's, I think you'd say that's fair, right? Yeah, I'm not trying to deflect responsibility or accountability for, for my actions. I mean, again, I, I did try to be honest in the book when I say, and that's the whole reason why I talk a little bit about some of these stories from, from boarding school, because I'm, I'm trying to be thoughtful and say, okay, well, was I always a little bit of a scumbag with this kind of felonious mentality, or does Wall Street attract a certain person and then kind of break them down and build them back up into this into this world that deviates so far from, from reality? And, and in conclusion, again, I try and let people draw their own conclusions, but my personal opinion is that it's a little bit of both. I mean, I did It is. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. It's, I, I think the prep school stuff, uh, the stuff that you were exposed to, which a lot of folks are not, is a little bit different in terms of the way that they grow up. And I think it's a little bit of a factory, too. I think it's, you're groomed for some of that stuff. It's, it's just a ne- it's, it, it fits you like a good suit, so to speak, and probably too much so. Oh, yeah, w- without question. But then once you get there, you know, your whole, your whole reality changes. Your attitudes towards money change. Your attitudes towards success change. Your attitudes ter- towards women change. Your, mm-hmm. you know, your attitude towards basic human decency change. And so that's why you mentioned the dedication. You know, I joke about my, my wife reading it, and, and, and she has read it now. And, and she looks at it, and she's, you know, I think she likes the book, but she's surprised. and almost doesn't even recognize the person that is me in what she's reading because she knows – she only knows me after I left the industry, and, and right. so I think the way she interprets it is, is it's kind of a reflection of the culture um, more so than it is a reflection of me as a person. Yeah, I mean, do you look at it, almost look back at that period? And what, what time length are we talking about here, John, for everybody that's so, listening? So this started, yeah, this started around 2000. I started uh, with Solomon in 2000 mm-hmm. um, as an intern in London and then joined officially. Uh, in 2001, when I graduated from college, so right when the dot com bubble burst, yeah, right when the, kind of the, it was rubble. over with, yeah, right at the end, and then it, it carried carried through. Um, I retired from the industry in uh, 2011. 2011, you retired. Are you? What are you doing now? Yeah. Oh, not much. I just yeah. I play golf, hang out with my kids. Did you Did you make um, enough money to where you don't have to go back to work? Well, I think you, you can read <laughs> in the book that it, it doesn't sound like I'm the type of person that you know saved all of their, their bonuses. If anything, it was, it was the opposite. But I did um, I did invest pretty well in a couple of startups, mm-hmm. um, one in the fintech space and just another in the kind of a tech play. And so I kind of I toil around with um, those investments in, in my spare time and otherwise just kind of play golf and, and hang out hang out with my kids. Well, that's, that's, well, good for you on that piece of it. So do you look back at, at, at that period of time, that roughly 10, 11 years, and think of like it's an out-of-body experience for you? Oh. Yeah, without question, especially now that I've kind of 
step back into the real world, it's only now that I've realized how extreme and decadent our, our behaviors and attitudes were through that whole period. Are you reminded of it every day? Well, not really, because I, you know, I, I live in a quiet, beefy golf course uh, suburb of Houston, and I'm surrounded by old, boring white people. So day to day, you know, I'm not really reminded of it. I'm but, sure George you know, Bush appre- my- George Bush appreciates that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but you know, most of my friends um, are still in in banking or had been in banking, and so to that extent, you know, I'm I'm, I'm reminded of it. And it certainly, it was a lot of fun to, to write the book and go back and relive some of these experiences. And, and as I was writing, and I was I was kind of sharing the stories with some of the characters in the book who were right along there with me. Yeah, I haven't read the whole book yet. I just got into it and just started. I've been reading all the background and everything on it. So, But I am going to finish it, and I am finding it fascinating. I love to read. You know, I, my one of my all-time favorite books was Barbarians at the Gate. If you remember, that was yeah, like the first, book. it was a first tell-all kind of book um, in, in the marketplace and just a great, great lesson. It's one of my very favorite books of all times. I think this one's going to be up there too, John, just because it tells it like it is, the good, the bad, the ugly. And, I, and, and that I applaud you. Let me, the one other thing I, I want to ask, because I want to make sure it's cleared up, because a lot of people think you worked at Goldman Sachs, but you really didn't work at Goldman Sachs, right? No, so the, the Twitter account, GS Elevator, which mm-hmm. the premise of which is things overheard in the elevators of Goldman Sachs do not stay in the elevators of Goldman Sachs, that started as a joke. You yep. know, I was sitting in a bar in Hong Kong with some friends, and at the time, this was 2011, towards the end of 2011, there was a popular Twitter account that uh, supposedly chronicled things overheard in the Condé Nast building. Yeah, which would be, which in itself would be like, you know, uh, the devil wears Prada kind of activity, right? Exactly. That's that's exactly right. And so I was joking with some friends. I said, imagine if people actually heard the absurd, outrageous, sexist, racist, misogynist things that that we say and do and joke about. They would be entertained. They would be appalled. They would be shocked. And they would also be enlightened. I mean, you get the full spectrum of of emotion. I thought, okay, well, this would be hilarious, and I'll, and I'll start it. And so I chose the name, you know, Goldman Sachs Elevator, um, purely because at the time, you know, people were fascinated with uh, the quote-unquote vampire squid. Occupy Wall Street was just getting started, and, and right. Goldman Sachs had the big kind of target on their back. But more important, as as I saw, is um, in doing deals and throughout my career doing deals with with every bank on Wall Street, including countless deals with Goldman Sachs, I've always felt that uh, Goldman uh, almost reflected a kind of an amplified version of broader Wall Street culture. And so since the Twitter account was supposed to reflect an amplified version of banker, bro, frat, douche culture, you know, I thought that the name was rather... Was or or, or some, some said self-serving, unethical vultures. You know, I thought that was an it, interesting way of putting it. Sexist, hookers, drugs, everything. Um but, but it is funny to your to your point. You know, people have kind of criticized me for that, and and you know, I joke about it with my friends. I said, look, you know, we're we're talking about bond markets here, and that's what the book is all about. My experiences in the bond market, and and when you look in, at the world of fixed income, you know, Solomon is far more prestigious than than Goldman Sachs. Yeah. So it's almost comical for for people to almost use that to. Well, but I think I think outside the outside of your world, they actually have the better name. We're, we're, we're oh, so, yeah, without yeah. question, without yeah. question, and that and that goes into to to the fact that I use it because you know I think that is what appeals to you know Main Street, and and they do. There's a certain fascination with with Goldman Sachs. Do you think? But again, it was, well, you know, but, but, very clearly. Let's imagine you were Goldman Sachs. Anyone, 
Go ahead, let me let me ask this question. You, let's imagine you were at Goldman Sachs. Do you think you, that they weren't too happy about this by any means, right? No, no, no. Allegedly, they had started an internal investigation to try and find out who was behind it because the early tweets were very deal specific and banker specific, um, and so it, you know it did have a very credible feel to it. But I tweeted about specific bankers at Goldman, bankers at Morgan Stanley, bankers at J.P. Morgan. So as I thought, it was never explicitly about Goldman Sachs, but they certainly took a lot of heat for it early on. Yeah, well, uh, do you think it's fair? Do you think that's fair to be able to do that? You talk, you used them and targeted them as the, the rather than some other fictitious. I, and I get why you do that. I mean, I totally, I totally get why you would do it. Um, but do you think, I, to me, it's a little bit of dirty tactics. To me, it's not a fair thing to do. Uh, to target somebody well, else's company and, and put them at the forefront of that. No, 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 no. I, I, if you look at the tweets, I, I targeted every bank. Yeah, you know, but, it, but, but, come on, to the average guy, even though there's 700,000 people, 800,000 people following, you know, on the Twitter account, to the average guy, everybody thought it was really Goldman Sachs. They, they didn't think it was, you know, Solomon. They didn't think it was Merrill Lynch. They didn't think it was Citi. They didn't think it was anybody else. They really thought it was Goldman Sachs. No, I mean, I, I, I completely disagree. I, even to the Financial Times in 2011, I gave an interview where I said quite clearly, this is about Wall Street culture. Any person that literally thinks that these are conversations heard in elevators at Goldman Sachs is an idiot. And, and I've been very, very clear in saying that. Mm. What do you? Well, that's interesting. You still, I still disagree with you, but uh, but that's that we can we we can respectfully yeah, disagree. You're, you know, you're not the only, you're yeah. not the yeah. only one. Well, and you know, when were you finally discovered? When was the official date that that it really came out that Sorkin, un, you know, uncovered you? Yeah, you know, Sorkin got credit for uncovering me. Um, I believe in February of 2014, so yeah. last year. So going year. back. Over a year before that, you know, it was not a very uh, well-kept secret. I mean, once I decided to retire from banking, um, I didn't really care so much about my identity. So I was tweeting about things that actually happened to me or stories where people could quite clearly pinpoint that, that I was the source. And then I started writing things, uh, stories for Business Insider and other outlets where I was easily identifiable. So I had journalists who had known me in Asia say, hey, I know this is you. I had friends who said, I know this is you. But they never bothered to out me because they understood that my identity was not relevant to the construct of a satirical submit what you hear Twitter platform. Yeah. Hey, let me take a quick break. Cause I got to uh, just, we're talking about money and, and going straight to hell, but we're going to go straight somewhere else right now. And I'm talking about uh, my friends at Duncan because on all business, we're sponsored by Duncan. And I'm fueled by nothing stronger than Dunkin' Espresso, three or four at a time, by the way. I don't know about you, but there are thousands of ways to enjoy uh, their great coffee in all business, whichever Jeffrey has it runs on Dunkin', and America runs on Dunkin', too. Do you drink coffee? Me? Yeah, yeah. I, I love Dunkin' Dunkin' coffee. Yeah, there you go. Were you, were, you, were you drinking some of it when you were writing some of those tweets? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I try to, I try to write between 10... 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. when my kids are asleep. So yeah. I don't need coffee. I just need a bottle of wine. Hey, there you go. Well, that helps. So, I, you know, I read that you were really pissed at, at and we're talking about Andrew Roy, uh, Roy, Rose, uh, Ross, Andrew Ross Sorkin. Yeah, I heard you were really pissed when he outed you. Why, why were you pissed? Not at all. Not at all. Um, uh, first of all, I like, I like Andrew Ross Sorkin. I, I think he's, he's very, good. very smart. He's a good writer. And very, very yeah. charming. Yeah. Um, and he's always been uh, gracious to me. Um, you know, I think... 
there were a lot of ways that um, the New York Times, you know, I think um, didn't handle that story correctly. But I don't have a problem with him being out. Well, why, anything, did, why didn't you, um, why didn't you think they handled it correctly? Um, I think they tried to uh, position me as, as an outsider. You know, they were very preoccupied with the fact that I was this guy in in Texas. You know, as if I was just you know, making up all of these, these, yeah, but they should have went back to you. From, they should have went back to your history and saw that you, know, you spent 10 years there. So, Oh yeah, of course. And, 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 and they were so preoccupied with little details like that, that I felt were an attempt just to hit it, hit it my credibility. But no, I mean, to be clear, we were always planning on revealing my identity. I think once you get more and more into the book, you'll realize that the vantage point is so unique and so specific that it's impossible to tell any of these stories without revealing my identity. So that was always supposed to be part of the part of the process. Mm-hmm. Where did you get some of the inspiration for the tweets? Was it was it always your personal tweets, experience? I mean, because you wrote about some things that weren't had nothing to do with you. I mean, with in terms of the tweets. Well, I mean, like my first. Were you married once? Well, my first wife was vehemently pro-life until she, my girlfriend got pregnant. I mean, yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you you list that as an example. So. People often conflate the material on Twitter with my own personal right. uh, belief. So it's, it's not true. So the, the Twitter account is, is, is a character that is supposed to reflect the Wall Street banker kind of bro mentality. Yep. So it, has, it has, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with how I actually feel. So it, it can be sexist, it can be misogynist, it can be classist, it can be racist. And that's not supposed to be a reflection on me personally. Yep. So the material comes from things that I have maybe said or overheard or things that people um, submit and send to me or things that my, my friends give me, and I'll tweet and curate them to the extent that I think that they accurately reflect uh, the mentality. So sometimes I might even make something up mm-hmm. from thin air. And that's, that's why, again, it's not literally about conversations overheard in elevators. It's just anything that I think truthfully embodies the soul of, of, of Wall Street. Yeah, and I, you know, I think though, John, it's tough for people to separate that sometimes, isn't it? I mean, I think that's if if you find one thing that I think people come after you, I think it's tough for them to separate you as the person who is more the satirist, more of the person who's the reporter of those things. Um, although sometimes the inspiration, given some of your background in history, but it's tough for them to separate that with this intellectual exercise, don't you think? Oh, without question, and it can be it can be thoroughly frustrating. You know, I'll give you an example. There was a reviewer that was um, quote unquote disgusted that I quote unquote bragged about the fact that my garbage disposal eats better than ninety eight percent of oh, the yeah. world. Yeah, I read and, that and quote. I was shocked. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I said, "Look, it's the opposite. Yeah. I'm, I'm satirizing that mentality." Yeah, it's, uh, if you if you believe that, I would have a tough time. I mean, I, I look. I if I if I I watched your I watched a bunch of your interviews. Quite frankly, when my team came to me and said we should put this guy on, and I said I don't know. I, I and I could I went and looked at some of you, but then when I started watching some of your interviews, I thought okay, no, I give this guy credit. This is one side of him. Although there's some of the things you know. Quite frankly, I don't know. You know, given his past history and background of, of the, some of the shit that you did in Hong Kong and and in other places, I don't want you hanging around my daughter. I don't want you hanging around my wife. You know, so to speak. But I but I also see that you've made some of those transitions to say that was that life, and I got to put that over there, and this is the life I have now. Yeah, yeah well, all I'm saying is this is a this is a thoroughly corrupt and pervasively deviant culture. 
Yeah. Um, and I don't explicitly state it. I let people kind of draw their own conclusions. But that's, you know, that is how, how I feel. So it's totally insane for people, I found anyway, when they, when they comment on the book, to accuse me of glorifying and bragging about these, these antics because they're, they're horrendous. They're, yeah. It's a collection of pretty outrageous behavior, often unethical and illegal. Yeah. When, when you, uh, are there things that, that, that you miss from there? Not really. Um, you know, and again, I, I don't like the kind of epiphany angle to, to the story, which is why I left it out of the book. But, mm-hmm. you know, we did get to a point where um, I kind of realized that it was a bit of a soulless existence, you know, staring at a Bloomberg for 12 hours a day and then going out and, you know, partying and drinking all night with colleagues and clients and, and just waking up and, and doing it again the, the next day, you know, not caring about money, being focused on material things and and, uh, you know, it just became uh, boring to me. And so I just said, you know what, I, life is too short for this. So, I, you know, I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. So, well, I mean, if somebody asked me, they say, what do you miss about being Fortune 100 officer? I, I, I will tell them flat out. I, there's two things, the people of, and the company I was at. But, you know, the one thing I really miss is the plane. I used to have a private plane. So um, that was kind of nice to have a private jet. I miss those days. But, yeah, but, you know. Certainly to your point about the people, it is, it is interesting. Um, you know, you're surrounded by very smart, very ambitious, um, very almost efficient people. And so I've always found it's been a bit uh, frustrating when you when you step out of that world. And I used to joke when I had to visit my family for Christmas, you know, my mom would tell me to just go walk around Walmart for 15 minutes every time I came home just to kind of reacclimate to what pace. What the real world's like, you know, in terms of that. Because yeah, it is a different world. I mean, look, I have assistants, I have people, I have things, you know, and, and money brings that, power brings that. And, and you're, you were in a world of nothing but freaking predators. I mean, that's, that's truly what the world you were in. They're predators. I mean, they just kill, kill, kill. And, and then you get up and you go to bed, you kill, kill, kill. And, and so that's a tough life. Yeah, it was. Um, that's exactly that's exactly what it was like yeah. every single day. Yeah, but when when you see things, um, you know, I, I go out to fans. I ask fans questions, and they come in. They came in with a bunch for you. And Victoria, uh, see, I can read Victoria's name here. A girl, hear me roar. That's that's her Twitter account, and she she asks. Well, she, she doesn't like. Yeah, you're not gonna. You're, this is gonna be a good question. So she goes, "Are women really used as tethered goats?" You you remember that quote, right? Um, I, yeah, of course. Yeah, what, what? You remember the tweet? I can't remember the tweet or the comment. I, I've got it somewhere here. Yeah, I don't remember specifically, but it's, it's, a, it's a common term in in banking. And I, you know, and it, the book is filled with you know sexist uh, stories. You know, yeah. where clients um, specifically request that we bring young, attractive women to to meetings. Um, and that's the notion of a of a tethered uh, goat. You yeah, know, you, tethered goat, kind of like uh, from uh, Jurassic Park, where you tether the goat for the T Rex to come up on. Exactly. Yeah, for all the hedge fund clients, that yeah. we wheel out a, a young, attractive uh, bait. You know, woman. You know, bait. We had a, we had Basically, another, bait. Another, you use them as bait, and that and that's yep. a fairly common practice there. Especially on the trading floor, absolutely. So, do you, now, now, do you now? Let me ask you: Of your children, do you have a daughter? Um, I have a daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Did, doesn't that piss you off? Um, you know, honestly, I think that's just the way the world works. Yeah, and, well, and yeah. the more honest, the yeah, more I, honest I, we are about understanding it, the, the better positioned we are to address these these issues. You know, people talk about gender equality, and they make up these 
stories about how women make 77 cents on the dollar for every, you know, for a dollar, a dollar mammic. But that's just not true. And that's, that's just missing the point. And so when I want to talk about more substantive issues, it's about tethered goats or it's about the notion of a fake meritocracy or about how in a corporate culture that embraces the locker room mentality, how difficult it is for women to get promoted in that in that environment and you know the idea of a meritocracy is a complete sham yeah but but at the same time i i understand understanding it but the other thing is it pisses me off that we have uh, that people operate like that and i don't i choose not to operate with people that operate like that now when i can sometimes i don't have control yeah. yeah well sometimes you don't have control of that you know, if I'm inside of a company and I'm not the CEO, the CEO tries, uh, decides that we're going to go with this, you know, with this firm, this bank or whatever it might be. Well, that those aren't mine. I can raise my points. I can say this is outside of values. If that's the one thing that's, you know, truly, truly outside of our values, I, you know, that's what I'm trying to get to you, John. I get that you rationalize it. You're a very intelligent guy. Without question, you can hear that come through. And you and I haven't met you know, physically face to face. I've watched your interviews. No doubt that comes through. But where's the emotion out of that? I that's why I'm asking you about your daughter because that that just reacts to me. I mean, in in the fact that you don't say something about that, kind of says something about you too. Well, no, I, I wrote I wrote an entire article for Huffington Post about why women don't get promoted on on Wall Street. You know, I've, I've written about it. Just because I don't put it in the book, I talk about – I'll give you a perfect example in the book. This is so outrageous. We had a really young analyst, really meek, timid, shy uh, in Hong Kong, and he was always screwing up orders with the trading desk. So finally the head trader comes over and says, listen, we got to toughen this kid up. And they send him around to take a poll of every guy on the trading floor where he has to rank the five credit saleswomen by order of attractiveness. And then he has to put together a little PowerPoint presentation about it. Yeah, and that was talking bullshit. about how the torch, <laughs> the torch, the culture, the torch gets passed to the next generation. And the kid was so excited to be kind of brought into that world. And, he, you know, and it, that's shocking and, and, and appalling. And I, I put the story out there in the book, and I don't have to, I feel like I don't have to draw conclusions for people to say, this is outrageous, this is horrendous. But then I've gone on subsequent to putting the book out there to actually write articles and stories for people like Huffington Post where I say, yes, you know, the, what's happening to women in the workforce on Wall Street is, is outrageous. And, it, you know, something needs to be changed. Okay, so but, but, you're say, but that's what I want to hear you say. You're saying that, right? Oh, without question. Okay. I think, yeah. you know, women have a really hard time. You know, it's, it's completely unfair. And it's not just Wall Street. I think it's corporate culture. No, it's sports. it's a and lot of it's not in all cor- corporate culture because there are a lot of corporate cultures that actually do have women who run the companies and do oh, very well. Yeah, we all know that. And, for, for, yeah. for sure, but you know, there are certainly studies uh, more recently that, that talk about how women don't you know across corporate across the corporate landscape. You know, women lose interest in, in getting promoted because they they you know they don't really feel like they're part of part of the culture. And I'll give you an example as I experienced it. You know. A lot of a, a lot of the deal teams I was put on were because I was uh, good at binge drinking or good at golf or enjoyed the camaraderie of telling crazy jokes with my senior management or more importantly I could keep a secret when we went on these crazy business trips and that that connectivity creates opportunities for me that women don't have so fast forward two or three years you know I have more deal experience I can get promoted more quickly I can get paid more meanwhile the bank can say see. This guy's more qualified. We told you we're a meritocracy, and, and that's outrageous. Yeah. 
without question. Let me, I got to take a quick break again. Um, we welcome our newest partner, Liberty Tax to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Liberty has over 4,000 offices across North America, and they're counting. They're going. They're growing, which is awesome to see. Liberty is offering a tuition-free tax school that starts in September. These are where folks can learn a new skill, start a new career path, or explore uh, their franchise opportunity, which is really good. You can be one of those franchises. You can have somebody standing out there waving and dressed up in the Liberty statue, uh, bringing in the business. So if you're looking to get into the business, add another service to your business, or just need great tax prep services, look to Liberty. So thanks, Liberty. Appreciate it. Love it. You know, all those offices, 4,000. It's unbelievable, just in North America. Now, i got to ask you, John, um, some of your inspiration for some of the tweets. I, I remember reading Gawker said that it, it they it looked a lot like some other comedy feed which i thought was interesting coming from gawker because they say they're media so but um well, so, yeah i'm glad you brought that one up too that's an interesting case yeah. so um gawker said that i plagiarized tweets from a comedy feed yeah. did, did they the say which one feed. i couldn't i couldn't find which one did you? yeah they did they did they did okay. i looked it up it was a locked twitter account hmm. it's a private twitter account and so that alone is absurd. But more important, the GS Elevator Twitter feed is a submit-what-you-hear platform. It's, I'm aggregating, curating, and sometimes crafting these tweets. But I get a huge, huge number of submissions, submissions from friends of mine uh, at banks, and submissions you know, on my Twitter profile. I have an email account posted that accepts submissions. And so it's always been about... Um, collecting and aggregating these submissions. And I'll post whatever I think is reflective of this kind of mentality. And so it's completely absurd for them to try and smear me with, with that kind of accusation because the entire premise of the account is about posting anonymous snippets that are submitted to me. So what what lessons have you personally learned through this experience? Through the, through the experience of banking or through the experience of, of kind of starting a Twitter account and, and writing the book? No, I don't, I don't want to get into social media and make this about how to get 700,000 followers. I think you, you've been pretty clear about that. I, I think you you got to be controversial. you got to be in the in, in, um, in, in cause some great dissidents. I think that's what does it. I mean, uh, Kim Kardashian proves that every day. But no, what did, what did you learn? What did you learn as practical lessons learned on business? That you'd, you'd, because that's who's listening to me and listening to us, are business owners and C-suite executives and people who are aspiring to be business owners or, or, you know, presidents of companies uh, or, you know, all these officers that are out there, entrepreneurs. So what did, what lessons did you learn through your experience in business that you say, man, this is something, if I start another business, this is what I'm going to make sure I do. Yeah, the um, it's probably not a, um, a very politically correct answer. Yeah. But again, and I'm sure based on what you've said about your you know Fortune 100 experience and and the fact that as you saw, not everybody was deviant and corrupt and, and sexist and racist and everything else. Although, but, although, I, although, quite frankly, I'll t- you know, John, to be fair to you and fair to everybody's listening, there are a lot of people like that. I mean, there are, yeah. but it's but it's they're human beings, and so. Now, I do think certain kinds of cultures in businesses, and banking is one of those, and we're you know at the big trading houses. I think that has been very permanent, uh, permanent in 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 the culture, and so it's hard to eradicate. Very hard to change that. You know, um, so, you almost yeah, have to my, wipe it out and start it again. 
to, in order to create something that's different because culture develops over a yeah. long, long time. So, so I, I think that, but there are, you, I, you see it. I see it all the time. I still see it today. Yeah, and certainly it's it, it, it's a cliche, and obviously the the idea of, of bankers paying badly is is a, a well-tread cliche. But again, and this has come up quite frequently. Um, I guess I can I can come back to the lessons, but yeah, um, the it, what's what's uh, come up is the idea that uh, this is just about a few rotten apples. Well, no. We've heard these stories before. But my point, and I think you would agree with me, is the vantage point that I'm speaking from, which is. Sitting in the middle of the bond syndicate, you know, in the in the syndicate desk, you're in the middle of the world. So I work above the Chinese wall. I work with M&A bankers. I work with traders. I work with buy side clients, so hedge funds, and I work with sell side clients, you know, blue chip companies, General Electric, Ford, AIG, etc. And then I do deals with every bank on Wall Street. And so from this vantage point, I'm basically saying the culture that I experienced and saw is pervasively deviant and, yeah. and thoroughly corrupt. And yeah, so it's, it's, not, it's not an exception. What you saw and what you wrote about was not an exception. This is stuff that happened every single day. Yeah, and, yeah. and if we didn't get involved in these kind of antics that, again, were certainly unethical or often uh, illegal, we would almost get punished or we would fall behind. So if there was a hedge fund... Yeah, but that, that still, but that still doesn't with, make it right. I mean, seriously. I mean, it, you know, breaking the, breaking the rules... Um, Lying, stealing, cheating, whatever you want to call it, that still doesn't make it right, even if that's the culture. And that's, you know, that. No, that, of course. I, yeah. And that's where I find fault. Look, when I see stuff like that, I don't want to be a part of it. And, and have I walked away from deals? I've done it this week. This week alone, I had somebody who approached us about something. I said, no way. That's unethical. We're not doing it. Get away from them. Don't even return the calls. You know, and so, but you got to make those choices in life, you know, and some, now sometimes you've had to go through some of those experiences to understand that's not the right thing to do, right? And then you learn from yeah, and it. Sometimes, and sometimes your sense of reality can get a little bit warped. It was whacked. It's, it's kind of funny. Yours was whacked. Even, I got to say, John, yours was whacked. You're, you're, you're in a world that it's not reality. It's a different parallel universe, just different. Oh, with, without question. Um, and, you know, only in, in, in writing the book, to, to your point, you know, lessons learned and things like that, in writing the book, and I had a lot of fun writing it, um, a lot of times I would look back and say, wow, I never really thought about it at the time, but I cannot believe we did this, and I cannot believe I, I went along with it. But again, you know, if you want to succeed in that, in that universe, and if you want to succeed on a trading floor, and this is really one of the lessons I learned, you have to embrace the, the culture. And I certainly, as as you said, I certainly embraced the culture, you know, without apology. Yeah, you drank. I think you drank the Kool Aid pretty well. So, uh, you know, right or wrong, you drank the Kool Aid, and and I'm not judging you for it. But that's that's I think you did that. What were the, let's get back lessons learned. You were you were actually going to say it's kind of a sexist comment, but what what is it? Without trying to judge you or anything, no, what, what is it? Politically incorrect, and that was you know if, if oh, you want yeah. to. Um, if you want to succeed in you know whatever field you you choose, you ought to you have to kind of play by those rules. And people talk about you know you, you said that the the culture and moral values uh, and sense of reality within banking was was whack or, or deviant. And I agree with you. But as I experienced it, it wasn't always um, the bankers who were leading the charge. So you know we I'll give you a great example. We we were doing a deal for a Chinese company, and um, one of my counterparts at uh, Morgan Stanley. Um, was threatened with the loss of future business because we were at a dinner and the client, a CEO, I think a, probably a, a billionaire, 
um, wanted to go, he wanted to get rid of all the female bankers from the dinner. It was a big dinner, 30 bankers. And he wanted to take everybody to uh, dirty karaoke after dinner. Yep. And my counterpart at Morgan Stanley, happily married, very straight-laced guy, said, no, like, I'm, I'm going home. And the guy threatened and bullied him, and one of his colleagues also put peer pressure on him and said, look, you, you have to come with us. This is the cost of, of doing business. And uh, so, he, you know, he came with us. And we experienced the same thing with a lot of the, the U.S. clients, you know, whether it was AIG or Freddie Mac or whomever. I mean, I don't want to get into too, too many specifics with, with names, but, you know, it wasn't just bankers who were the most deviant or debaucherous. It was, you know, it was, it was a lot of people. And sometimes if, if they were our clients, you know, we had to go along or even facilitate a lot of these crazy antics. Well, and I've seen that, and and to be honest with it, in some cases I've had to participate in things that I don't. I look back and go, I wish I hadn't done that. And but th- I think those are choices you have to make in business. Okay, rapid fire. Here we go. Get ready, saddle up. Here we go. Um, what do you have in common with Daniel Gerber, of the founder of Gerber Baby Foods, uh, Akio Toyota, who's the CEO of Toyota, and Mark Bell, the former CEO of Penthouse? What do you guys have in common? Um, with the Gerber guy, I think we're both um, liars. <laughs> oh, is that okay? All right. That's the wrong um, answer. No, I, you know, it's the wrong answer. You want to take another one? Then another guess. Um, I was just kidding on that one, by the way. Okay. But no, I, I, I give up. You're all alums of Babson College in Boston. You guys all went oh, to the same yeah, college. Yeah, I, I breathed through that school. I don't even have that song of a connection. So yeah, it's, 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 like, it's gone in your memory, right? Okay, which do you like better, a Wooly Booger or a Parachute Adams? I have no idea what either of those things are. I, I thought you like fly You like fly fishermen, aren't you? You like to fish with flies? I love those are famous fishing yeah. flies. Maybe maybe you must be, must be doing some other fly. Are you tying your own flies yet? No, 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 no. All right, when you start okay. when you start tying your own flies, then I'll know that you're really into that. I mean, I, I know you like it, but I I know the guys that are in it. I have to I have to send some of my buddies. I'm a big hunter, and I hunt in South Dakota uh, pheasant hunting, and I have to send them feathers every year. They send I have to pull feathers off of birds and give them to them anyway. All right. Wow, yeah, you just make, make me look like a Philistine. That's okay. Yeah, well, hey, this is what is rapid fire, man. This is like there's no right or wrong answers, but we give them. But, well, uh, I guess there are some right answers. All right, New York, London, or Hong Kong? Which one do you like? Um, Hong Kong is the girl you date. London is the girl you marry. Yeah, oh, that's very – how about New York? New York's the greatest city in the world. It, it, it's in a different league. Yeah, it's, New York is unbelievable. I, it's you know it's my home, but my home home South Dakota. But I, I love New York. I never see myself leaving again. I and I love London. I love Hong Kong too. Quite frankly. All right. The, how about the, the problem with London? Go ahead. The problem with London is it's, it's the city where people go to buy respectability. So there's a lot of illicit money, mm-hmm. a lot of Arab money, a lot of Russian money. Yeah, but you so, see that in New you know, York though too. Quite frankly, you really well, see that. Well, certainly more yeah. increasingly, but. Yeah. Um, $90 million dollar apartments in New York now going, and these are, wow, it's just amazing. How about a BMW, well, how about a, a BMW M3 or a Maserati convertible? Oh, a Maserati convertible. Okay, well, you I bought crashed, one. I crashed one in the yeah. yeah, I crashed one in the book. It's right. That's why. That's why I put it in here. Cause I think, I, I think I remember reading something while you were drinking. You got pissed off at a guy that was bragging about buying a BMW. So you stumbled out and bought a Maserati, and then two or three days later, you, you totaled it. Right? I think that's the story. Yeah, yeah something like that. <laughs> and M three is for uh, an M three is for uh, Asian college kids at Berkeley. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> got it. You you use a lot of nicknames in the book. What was yours? Um, hmm. Um, they call me the minister. The minister, why? Now, come because, on, tell, tell us why. Because it wasn't because you were going to church every Sunday. No, no, it was because um, uh, it was right after the invasion of Iraq, and um, you had the Minister of Information. Uh-huh. Uh, Remember that guy. the Minister of Misinformation, because he would talk about how, you know, he, he, they were chasing the infidels from Baghdad right when they were getting surrounded. And so we would always joke that um, we would have to provide a lot of misinformation to our clients when we were doing deals. Ah, okay. Well, there you go. What was the first bank on Wall Street? You remember that? The first bank. Very on Wall first Street. of it. This uh, is like a history test, man. Yeah, my team. Dig, my team does a really good job of digging this shit up. I'm telling you. That. Give me a clue on the year. Uh, year. 1784. Oh, it's Hamilton's. Hamilton's. Yeah, bank. the bank. bank yeah, Bank of New York. That's right. Founded by Alexander Hamilton in 1784, and he was the was the very first financial institution to hold assets physically on Wall Street. The bank was also the first stock listed in the New York Stock Exchange when it debuted in 1792. I was like, we like to do yeah, a little Ron, history. Ron, What's that? Ron Chernow's biography of Hamilton is amazing. Yeah. How about? Yeah, I haven't read it. All right. How 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 old are you in Hong Kong years? <laughs> 120. Is that is it really? How old? I mean, how old are you really? Uh, in real life, I'm 36. 36, and you said times know, five years. It was like. Living in Hong Kong was killing you because one year in Hong Kong was aging him like five years. So that's, I get it now. So you'd be like 150 yeah. something, actually. 170. You figure that out. Yeah. Wow. Well, you're, but you're still, yeah, I mean, it was, you're uh, still alive. It, you're still alive, my friend. Hey, what? I'm going to give you a chance for a shameless plug. What? Um, you, you can you can plug anything. You can, I don't care. You can plug your book. You can plug a charity. You can plug whatever. I'm afraid to ask you what to plug, to be honest with you. So, uh, but w- w- if you could plug anything, what would you plug? Um, well, my two favorite charities, I guess, are the, the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and um, I like, actually, the North Shore Animal League to, to your, the No-Kill Shelter in Long Island. Um, there you go. Are both great, great charities. Uh, and obviously, my book is, um, you know, excellent. It's entertaining. It's a fun read. There's been a lot of misinformation from the establishment who've been, you know, attempted to kind of smear me. But um, once you get into it, I, I would give anybody kind of the, the money-back guarantee on the book. It's called you, Straight to Hell, True Tales of Deviant Debauchery and Billion-Dollar Deals. And I promise you, you've never read anything like it. Well, I'm into it. I'm, I'm enjoying it. I think it's a must-read for people so they know what you're walking into. And it's going to be interesting. You know, my books, a couple of my books are in some of the courses for business school. And it'll be interesting to see that they ought to make this one of the books in business school. Well, that would be good. At least. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of kids, a lot of kids reach out to me and say, you know, it's, it's very interesting. They'll either say, "Wow, this book makes me want to go into finance," or it's, they say, "Wow, I thank God I read this book. It makes me want to get out of finance." Exactly, without question. Well, thanks a lot, John, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Taking you behind the scenes of what's happening in the business world, Jeffrey Hazlett hosts All Business, brought to you by Fortinet. Hey, after every show, I like to talk about what did I learn, and I learned a lot today. You know, I really tried to to drill down on John a little bit about did he have any remorse, and you know, he's not interested in talking about any of that. And he talked about sometimes you just have to follow the rules of the business, and to be successful, that's what you have to do. And that's probably true. 
um, if you want to play that game. You know, I've always been an independent guy. That's why they call me a sometimes cowboy. Not just because I want to be a real cowboy, but because I like to do it my way. Doesn't mean it's right, doesn't mean it's wrong, but you know what? It's my way. And I can rethink and make sure that I don't have to participate in things that I don't consider to be morally right, um, legally right, ethically right, or just for no other reason than I just don't like that guy that I don't want to do business with him or with her. And, and, and that's the one thing, I think, is that you don't have to play that game. In fact, I encourage you not to. And if more of us did it, we'd have less of this kind of crap that we see that John's talking about. I, at least I applaud him for writing about it, and I applaud him for showing us what not to do and stay away from this kind of bullshit that you see in business. And when you see it, you confront it. And that's the kind of business that I want to do. With I want to do business with people like that. I don't want to do business with people that I consider a little, I don't know, that I want to punch in the face. Anyway, that's what I got to say. This has been uh, Jeffrey Hazlett. This has been all business on the Play.it Network. Make sure, tell your friends, tune in. I can't wait to see you again next week. most respected business experts, Jeffrey Hazlett. I want to take you behind the scenes on what's happening in business today. And whether you're on Main Street or Wall Street, we're going to find out the secrets behind their success. This is All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.